0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Local Legends with Lark Farley. I'm your host, Lark. A little bit about the podcast, if you're new, every Sunday I share with you all stories that took place in my small hometown, Brown County in Indiana. These stories range from true crime to the paranormal and everywhere in between. If you'd like to share your own hometown stories, you can email me at locallegendswithlark at gmail.com. As always, all of the articles used in today's episodes are linked in the description should you want to check them out for yourself. Before we get into today's episode, just wanted to take a moment to let you guys know that there has been a lot of true crime stories recently released in the Brown County Democrat. These are very interesting, I would say bigger stories, and I really want to get to them. And I'm really interested in researching them. So for the next few weeks after this spooky Halloween episode, the next several episodes will be true crime related. I know that I try to switch between doing one week of true crime and the next week of something paranormal or something different. However, due to the amount of new true crime material that has been released in the Brown County Democrat. I wanted to share these stories. You know, they, they're everywhere between cemetery desecration to human remains, new human remains being discovered by Hunter in Brown County, to a big case update for the murder of Angela Weishit Uh, If you haven't listened to the first case update or body discovered in Brown County, I would highly recommend you do so because when I release this second update or the third episode in the Angela Weishit case series, we're going to be going into the details of the connection between the victim, Angela Weishit, and the perpetrators. There's two people that have been arrested for her murder and this second case update that was released by investigators goes into the details of how she was murdered, the events that led up to the murder, and like I said, the connection between the victim and the perpetrators. So it's gonna be a big case story. It's it's very graphic. I will give a warning for that. So if true crime's not your thing, these next few episodes might not be your vibe, and that's fine, but I just wanted to give you all a warning. After this episode, the next several will be true crime related. Let's get back into today's episode, which is spooky stories from the Brown County Democrat. These were pulled from the archives. They span a vast number of years and eras, and they're just the spookiest stories that Brown County has to offer. And if you're listening on Sunday the 31st when this episode will be released. Happy Halloween. I hope you have the best Halloween ever. I'm so excited for Halloween. Halloween's my favorite holiday, like I've said before. I'm here for the spooks. Love the spooks. I hope you're dressed up. I hope you have parties. I hope you have events. I hope you have fun. And if, like, parties and events aren't your thing, then I hope you get to, like, watch spooky movies and get all cozy. Because Halloween is all about, you know, celebrating the spooks, and doing that in however way you see fit. So for me, it was sharing these spooky stories from Brown County. So let's all curl up, let's all get spooky, and let's get into it. So the article we'll be reading from today is titled, From Out of the Past, Spooky Brown County Stories Pulled from the Archives. So it starts with the editor's note, it says, in the spirit of Halloween, we pulled this collection of spooky Brown County stories from the October 23rd, 2013 issue of the Brown County Democrat for readers to enjoy again or for the first time. So what's cool about the Brown County Democrat is they like, they have an archival system of all of their old articles as well as their new ones. And this is all free, guys. Like you can peruse the Brown County Democrat's previous and old articles on their website, bcdemocrat.com for free. It's all there. You can just look at it. You don't have to pay a subscription. You don't have to find a way to get through the paywall. It's all free, and you can just look through all of it. And it's so interesting and so entertaining, and I highly recommend it. It says, one might expect to find a wide and terrifying variety of local stories of ghostly, macabre, and haunted in Brown County. When pressed during this Halloween season, longtime Brown County State Park naturalist Jim Eagleman couldn't come up with a single ghost story. Now, Jim Engelman, sorry, I'm going to derail. Jim Engelman is a name, a familiar name, because if you remember from the Bigfoot series, episode one, Jim Engelman was interviewed on whether or not he thought Brown County had Bigfoot, and he said no. But Jim Engelman comes back again. He says, sure, there was a tale of bloody river through downtown Nashville, but in Eagleman's telling, it was a result of an irresponsible butcher practicing poor disposal techniques. That is disgusting. So I looked into this a little more, and basically, it was, um, there was blood in the river, because there's a river that flows very close to downtown Nashville. Like, you, to get into Nashville, you have to drive over this bridge, and, like, that's the creek they're talking about. It's a creek, by the way, not a river. It's not that wide. Anyway, there was blood in the creek and everyone, obviously, freaked out thinking that people were being butchered or something. And it wasn't. It was just a butcher that lived alongside the creek and was dumping the remains that he didn't need from the animals into the creek, which is obviously a health hazard. Like, don't do that because they also use those creeks sometimes to drink from. So, like, can we not spoil our own drinking water? Please and thank you. Longtime Brown County resident and artist John Mills was stumped, as was Norma Crouch of Crouch's Market. Stories in several books of local folklore, including an eight to ten foot tall watcher in southern Brown County or a ghostly hand scrawling and scratching around in ogle hollow could not be verified by local folks. No one had seen or felt their presence or even heard of them. Now, the, the eight to ten foot watcher, that was later thought of to be Bigfoot. So they call it a Watcher because I guess back then they just didn't know Bigfoot existed or maybe they didn't have a name for Bigfoot back then. But anyway, it's thought of that the 8 to 10 foot tall Watcher was Bigfoot. Anyway, moving on. But three local storytellers did come up with a few tales that they wanted to share, which are the following stories we're going to talk about today. First up, we have the Transparent Toddler, which sounds like a sick rock band, to be honest everyone always asks for stories about the jail, said Julia Pearson, director of the Brown County Historical Society. So if you didn't know, sorry, I'm going to derail again. Brown County has this very old jail from like the 1800s, like late 1800s, and it's thought of to be haunted, obviously, because it's a jail. And so typically when you look at Brown County, like ghost stories, that's where you'll find all the stories is from that jail. She tells visitors, though, It's not a ghost story. It's about an inmate who had his own key. Okay. Why would you give an inmate a key to their own cell? Doesn't that just seem counterintuitive? Then why put him in jail? Just put him in his own home at that point. He would let himself out in the morning, go to the sheriff's farm, chop wood, have dinner that the sheriff's wife fed him, carry wood in, carry some wood back, and lock himself back up in his cell. Okay. It says, the Pioneer Village's two-story cabin in downtown Nashville is where Pearson's actually spooky story is set. In the cabin, there was a mannequin that had a mask on top of another mask. It was frightening. She had it on a wig and was supposed to be a school marm. And I heard a little girl screaming and I apologized to the mother. I said, thank you. I've been wanting to move the mannequin. So, when the other lady showed up with her two little boys, I thought she was talking about the mannequin. She said, no, no, that baby crib in the corner, where did it come from? Most of the collection pieces are from Brown County attics and cellars, Pearson said. There was a little girl's spirit hanging in the crib looking out, Pearson said. It frightened her and the children and she sent her husband and he walked around the perimeter of the room and that child's spirit watched him the entire way. Who was the ghostly child? Pearson says she doesn't know. After all, many children have slept in that bed over the years. There are, there's a lot happening in this story, and I'm sorry, but whoever wrote it, girl, I'm gonna need you to, like, be consistent, okay? You are all over the place. So, from what I can gather, there was an inmate in the cell, in the jail, who had a key, I guess because they thought he was responsible, and he would eat at the table of the sheriff, go to the sheriff's house, was friendly with the sheriff's wife, and chopped wood for the sheriff. And then, after eating supper with said sheriff and sheriff's wife, he would then lock himself back up in his own cell. So we have that whole story going on, which is just very odd. And then we have a separate story of someone visiting the jail, seeing a child in the crib, and it scared this wife and her kids. Now, this is just one person experiencing this supposed ghostly baby girl child ghost, and like, I'm sorry, it's not enough for me. I have questions, and I have major doubts. Okay, second story, gangster meets his end. In 1933, John Dillinger and his gang escaped from the prison in Michigan City, cutting a swath of bank robbery and murders across the Midwest from South Dakota to Ohio. But his story isn't, the one that Brown County historian and archivist Diana Biddle tells. This is the tale of James Jenkins, convicted murderer and escaped convict. Dillinger and his gang hatched a plan to distract their police pursuers by ditching Jenkins, one of the more dangerous members of the gang. But Jenkins proved tougher than expected and managed to steal a car and make his way south to the dirt roads around a Brown County village, then called Georgetown, now is called Bean Blossom. Biddle recounted what happened while some of the locals were getting together to investigate a man seen walking toward the town. Local man Ben Cantor was coming across the road and he had a shotgun and Herb McDonald was starting to get in the car and he also had a shotgun. Ivan Bond was already in the car. James Jenkins comes around the corner of the store and he says, I'm having car trouble. And Herb says, well, if you check out, okay, then we'll help you. But we've had some trouble in these parts. At that point, Jenkins reached for a gun and shot Herb through the shoulder. Ben Cantor was standing so close to James Jenkins that the barrel of his gun actually hit him in the shoulder, so he had to take a step back in order to take a shot. Then he blew the side of his face off. But by most reports, Jenkins was actually killed in Bean Blossom. But nobody in Bean Blossom wanted to take credit for the murder. So they loaded Jenkins up in the car and took him over to Doc McMurphy's office so that he died in Nashville. Biddle said. The locals may have dragged his body out of Bean Blossom, but some say the spirit of that desperate criminal still lingers somewhere in Bean Blossom, maybe on the side of the old general store next to McDonald's, Shopworth, where Biddle's family works, or maybe in Cantor's abandoned house in Bean Blossom. Oh my goodness, it's so messed up. You know, you heard about that a lot, you know, when, when they would have like these robber gangs moving around, in america like they they would come to these small towns right i guess just thinking that they were going to get away with whatever they wanted to get away with and those small town locals would shoot them up they were just like all right i'm gonna shoot you before you can shoot me they blew jenkins face off no questions asked i don't know i get it you know, you don't want to be robbed or whatever. But, like, maybe you should ask some question, lead-up questions before you just blow someone's face off. You know, a friendly shot to the kneecap. Where's Jenkins gonna go? You know, sure, he was reaching for his gun. I get it. Self-defense. Shoot him in the kneecap. Because then not only is A, his kneecap shot, so he can't run, and he's gonna be distracted, so he's not gonna shoot you. He just got his kneecap shot. And then, not only is his kneecap shot, he's probably going to go to jail for the rest of his life. So, there you go. Case solved. And it didn't require you having to murder someone, put their body in the truck, and then drive him around town so that people don't know where he got shot at originally. You know what I'm saying? Just, like, <laughs> shoot people in kneecaps versus just murdering them in cold blood. This, so, this is another story. Tale of the Missing Tank. This story comes from the era of World War II as recounted by writer and tall tale teller Hank Swain. On a late autumn afternoon in 1942, Fred Harrington, vice president of the Marmon Harrington Manufacturing Company, was spending the weekend in his Brown County cabin near Kelly Hill. A low boy truck had just unloaded the new army tank and Fred gave the driver instructions that he was to drive the tank 12 hours a day for the next few days to test for faulty parts. Fred's company manufactured the tanks for the army. On Monday morning, Tyson Millo went to town in his wagon to pick up some groceries. As he was returning, he started to nod off. Reaching the hill, he spotted a tank coming over the crest. When his mules saw this growing foreign monster, they all bolted and Ty was pulled from his seat. He stopped rolling in time to see the tank make firewood out of his wagon. The explosion popped a bag of flour in the groceries and sent up a big white cloud coating the tank. He shouted down to Bill Lyons Place, yelling, Bill, Bill, get your gun, the Germans are coming. By the time Ty got down to Bill, the tank was disappearing in the dust down Wallow Hollow. They decided to follow the tank tracks since that was the direction Ty's mules had run. As they went, their apprehension increased. Wallow Hollow Bog was the only place in Brown County known to have quicksand. The tracks ended at the bog, and instead of a tank, they found only Ty's mules facing the mire. They searched and they searched, but the tank was never found, lost forever to the shifting sands of Wallow Hollow. What a made-up name if I've ever heard of one. You're going to sit there and tell me that Brown County has a bog that's named Wallow Hollow Bog? What is this? Are we in, like, some gothic fairy tale? Wallow Hollow Bog? I have never heard of this place. But it sounds amazing. Also, uh, very dangerous. So there we go, guys. Those were the, the spooky stories from Brown County that were released uh, from the Brown County Democrat. I'm sure there's a lot more scary stories uh, that we can get to at some point in the future. But for now, I'll just let you sit with those. A ghost, transparent toddler. John Dillinger's gang member Jenkins gets massacred by fellow locals at Brown County. And a Wallow hollow bog incident involving a tank. I imagine that it would be scary as a Brown County local in the middle of a rural town in the middle of nowhere, seeing a tank would be kind of terrifying in and of itself. Can you imagine? It's World War II. You know that stuff's going down. And then you see a tank. I, w- I would probably take off running too, to be honest. But also to whoever was, you know, running the tank, girl, you've got to know the surrounding areas and whether or not the terrain is strong enough to hold a tank. So, needs to be more planning there. I mean, a better organization for sure. But anyway, those were the stories. I thought they were kind of fun and again, happy Halloween. I hope you have a great Halloween. We love the spooks here on Local Legends with Lark, and I just hope you have a great day. Stay safe, stay hydrated, and I'll catch you all next week. We're going to be diving deep into those true crime stories. Next week will be the second case update for Angela Weishit. We'll be getting down to the nitty-gritty details of what happened, who was who, how were they connected, how and why Angela was murdered. So we're going to break that all down next week. If you're interested in that, definitely check it out and I'll see you next week. Bye.